Great. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope everyone slept okay, enjoyed the discussion of philosophy and politics last night, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so if you've got your outlines open, we'll start. There's a, there's a quote there that I want us to start thinking about. It's, it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. What do you make of this quote? Now, just to clarify, I'm pretty sure, it's pretty certain that St. Francis of Assisi didn't actually say this. In fact, no one really knows where it originates from. But what do you make of the quote and the sentiment it carries? What do you think it gets right and what do you think it gets wrong? Maybe some thoughts. As we, I know it's just to get us our juices flowing this morning. Yeah. It can often be used as a get-out for never actually speaking about English. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yep, yeah, yep. What other re- reactions, thoughts? What do you think it gets right, wrong, or misses, or misleading? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Well, I think it's what's Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so there's a, there's, a, there's an acting imperative. Yep, yep. So that's not. It's uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good point. Yeah. Other other thoughts, reflections. Preach the gospel always. The always aspect is, I think, a good reminder. Yeah. So it's positive. Yeah, it's always, always. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Necessary doesn't necessarily mean Okay, well, yeah, I suppose, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting, interesting, de- maybe it comes back to the, the first part about, well, how many times is necessary, it could be once a year, um, <laughs> or it could be five times a day, that's an, yeah, an ambiguity there, yeah, you look like you're going to say something. Yeah, be right on board if it said present the gospel. Right. But I just, you know, preach the gospel, uh, I have particular ideas of what that... What that actually looks like, yeah, that's right, pulpit thumping kind of... Sort of that's that's yeah that's the preacher speaking there that's right yeah yeah preach preach it preach it brother that's right yeah um, yeah well that's a, that's a good thought so I, I, we can keep continuing that because we're going to be reflecting on that quote in many ways today it's provocative um, because I think it gets us thinking about that we're what we're going to think about today which is sharing the gospel at work or sharing the gospel in in many cases but particularly the work context can we should we preach the gospel at all times, and how important or necessary are words in the proclamation of the gospel? What is the relationship between words and deeds as we proclaim at work? And how does this apply in our work contexts? Now, I think the tension is increased uh, because I think the Bible actually teaches, in some ways, both things. So, for example, consider 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. So, if you want to flip, just you should have had 1 Peter 2 open, but let's... Um, 1 Peter 3, 1... Just flip um, to a couple of verses later, which is a fascinating passage, which says, uh, she talks about the wives, it says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So maybe it was actually Peter who was the first one to write St. Francis's quote, because here it seems that conversion is wordless. But then how do we reconcile that with the idea that's found in passages like Romans 10.14, and particularly the, the idea that Aaron raised, Romans 10.14, um, if you're a quick Bible flip, you can get there, but I'll just quote it. It says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one in, of whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them. seems that salvation can only come when the gospel is 
heard, it's spoken, it's preached. So, do we have attention here? What is the best way to communicate the gospel? Is it through our lives or through our lips? Is one preferable to the other? What do we think? Well, this is what we're going to explore this morning here today. And we're going to start with thinking, proclaiming without words. I mean, is this even biblical? Um, so, can we proclaim the gospel without words? And it would seem like verses like 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2, it explicitly claims that someone can be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of their lives. And this theme, though, of promoting or proclaiming the gospel by the purity and distinctiveness of the lives of the believer is throughout the Bible. Perhaps there's a slight distinction between preaching and proclaiming, but maybe that's something which we'll draw out in this, conversa- in this, in this, um, this session today. Because this idea is actually begins in the Old Testament, that the nation of Israel were to be a beacon to the nations, light, if you wanted to, if you, if, light so much if you, want to, if you want, to declare the glory of the Lord. For example, in Deuteronomy 4, the ethical behavior of Israel, which was shaped by following the law, would lead to the pagan nations around them declaring, in Deuteronomy 4, 6, it says, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. They would then be regarded as a great nation and hence glory and honor is given to God. And this actually finds fulfillment in the Old Testament itself in 1 Kings 10, 1 to 8, where the Queen of Sheba arrives and admires the success, wisdom and priestly sacrifices. And she says, praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. So here what's happened is that following the law, the distinctiveness of the nation of Israel... Um, their behavior has led to praise to God from a foreign leader. This idea finds further development and clarity with the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, Jesus describes those who follow him as salt and light. I'm sure you're familiar with that. You are the light of the world. Note, that's actually a statement of identity, isn't it? Something that we were talking about yesterday, identity. You are the salt of the earth. And this then leads to what? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 5.14, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God, sorry, glorify your Father in heaven. So here, good deeds are described as light, and, it's, and this is winsome and ultimately attractive, leading people to give glory to God. Jesus is saying that your identity as salt and light will lead you to be different, and that difference will lead to glory to God. It's the same idea as what, the similar ideas to what happened in the Old Testament. People see you and praise God. And again, the same concept and the same outcome is described in 1 Peter chapter 2, which we just had read. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Again, the logic of this passage seems clear. Christians are to live among unbelievers. Unbelievers see the difference that the gospel makes to your lives or to our lives. And the unbelievers are converted and then bring glory to God. I do find it a little bit hard to work out how a non-believer can glorify God without actually becoming a believer. But that's one of the tension points, but I think that's kind of what the logic is saying. Now, I must confess, I was confused by this passage and this idea for a long time. In my own personal journey of faith, I had very little to do with seeing the distinctiveness of the lives of those around me, of Christians. I came to faith very much as a result of thinking and preaching and, um, and, and, th- and, pro- and processing mentally. 
And so I, I really wasn't convinced that the lives of people, no matter how good, could be particularly persuasive. That wasn't my personal experience. I became convinced that people were converted by faithful presentation and preaching of the gospel. So surely one Peter should read, Christians live among unbelievers, the unbelievers hear a really persuasive gospel presentation, and they are converted and bring glory to God. That's what I kind of wanted almost one Peter to say. But it's not what it says, is it? Peter seems to make an implicit prediction. He seems to set up an expectation that distinctive lives would actually lead to people becoming Christian. Now, I've, I've dubbed this, this the, the attraction-conversion hypothesis, um, that people are attracted by the Christian message and they'll become believers. Now, as I said, I was uncomfortable with this idea. I wasn't completely persuaded that this was what the passage, that this Bible passage actually seemed to be teaching. So maybe, maybe I just got it wrong. I'd never seen it in my life, and I never quite understood how it could work. But as I've actually met and talked with people, particularly as I've heard their testimonies on Bigger Questions, the show that I, that I run, I've been persuaded there is something to this, that there is something to the idea of missional ethics, the idea that lives have the power to persuade. I've noticed a very a broad, it's a general, but it's a very broad theme, that as I hear testimonies on Bigger Questions, I hear people come from, many who come from completely pagan, Non-believing backgrounds are often struck by the attractiveness and the difference of the lives of believers. It prompts questions, longings, exploration. In some sense, they want what they have. So, for example, Gillian Asquith is now a lecturer at Melbourne School of Theology. She was going out with a guy who'd just become a believer. She was in her last year of high school. And she was aggrieved that this new boyfriend of hers really actually wanted to spend time with her, his new Christian friends. He'd just become a believer himself and not so much time with her. Now, this annoyed her, but she could see why, because unlike herself, her friends were manipulative, who her friends were manipulative, gossiping, and negative, but this group of Christians were completely different. They didn't gossip, they cared for each other, and they were just really lovely people. And so she saw a change on the inside, and she wanted really what these people, these really lovely people she met, she, wanted, she was attracted to believers who abstained from gossiping and being nasty to each other. Another guy, John Hudson, who was a church pastor in Melbourne, is now doing a PhD in theology. Uh, he grew up as a pagan atheist and led a fairly rebellious uh, life as a teenager, even doing drug dealing, etc. Uh, this was in the bad kind. This is not the doctor kind of, of the kind. <laughs> uh, anyway, he encountered Christians at university who uh, were very different. They were other person-centered, and he struck, was struck by them. And this was a major factor challenging his atheism. He saw these Christians who did things not in their best interest, and he was intrigued why. Indonesia's first supermodel, Tracy Trinita, was rich, famous, and successful, and she grew up without God. Yet a friend invited her to a church in Paris, as a, a supermodel, I suppose, is wont to do, um, where she met people, again, who were different. They had a, a glow. She said it was a glow. It's not like a makeup or lighting or glitter kind of glow, but they were simple yet happy. And she wanted to know why they were so happy. Perhaps they were like this light, that Jesus mentions in the Gospel of Matthew. And this led to a dramatic encounter and change in Tracy's life. Now, I could go on. I've got many, many stories like this. But I must confess, I've been surprised by how many people from clearly pagan backgrounds have been persuaded to give Christianity a hearing because of the attractive lives of the people they meet. Notice with the, the three stories I shared that there's no technique there's no silver bullet. There's no one specific virtue or characteristic that attracted these people to the, these people. Each, 
they are each attracted to something different or the kind of the vibe about these Christians. So perhaps, again, it's more specifically, it's, it's more about who you are than specifically what you do. This, the transformation that flows from the new identity as the pure, cleansed, holy people of God, people in Christ. So it seems to be something to the idea of preaching the gospel without words. Our lives can demonstrate the reality of the gospel in the world. And I think this is particularly relevant in our modern world, the age of authenticity, as some have described it, which judges the truth of something based on the impact on someone's life. And that's why I think in our culture, people are so repulsed by hypocrisy. And this is precisely the reason we set up, this, this, this concept, this idea of missional ethics is precisely the reason we set up Life at Work, which we had the Life at Work conference earlier this year, which the breakfasts and conferences which are based around this concept of missional ethics, that the distinctive life that our Christian character is attractive. So further to what we shared yesterday and thought about yesterday, how can we be distinctive at work in the way that we work, in the way we speak, with purity and holiness? Well, it's something, for, something to ponder. But don't for a second underestimate how the power of how you conduct yourself at work. Now, as we reflect on the power of the distinctive life, notice that Peter assumes that believers live amidst a pagan world, a non-Christian world. Read 1 Peter 2 again. It says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day He visits us. Now, it's no good being distinctive if you're not being, being seen or you're with everybody who's the same. A diamond stands out far more clearly on a black background. Now, I must confess, I feel safe and secure in retreating to my Christian bubble. It's nice to hang out with people who are like you and think the same things as you and agree with you. And Peter, but Peter here assumes, though, and it's, and it's important to come, to, to come together, to, like a camp, for example, it's important to come together, to be together. But Peter here assumes that, the, though, believers, as he says in 1 Peter, will actually be living among unbelievers. Now, in ancient cities, the context in which this was written, it was almost impossible to not live among unbelievers. Ancient cities were crowded, and I really mean crowded. Renowned sociologist Rodney Stark, in his outstanding book, The Rise of Christianity, writes a fascinating chapter about the life in ancient cities. He says, most people lived in tiny cubicles in multi-storied tenements, and within these tenements, tenants rarely had more than one room in which entire families were herded together. Privacy was a hard thing to find. So people lived very public lives. You would have heard what went on next door, the conversations, the rows, the treatments of others, the meetings. Most church gatherings would have been in houses, so you'd hear the singing in one whole tenement. You'd know when someone became a Christian, you would have seen the changes in people's lives because people were visible. The Christian gospel does change lives and transforms people, and this change would have been obvious to everyone around. Yet our world is massively different. Our culture has been become extraordinarily private. In our culture, faith is not only private, but life is privatized. When I go home, I have a gate. I shut the gate, or if I remember to shut the gate, I shut the gate. Uh, shut the door, and then my life is completely separate from, what, from the rest of the world. My intersection with the non-Christian world and visibility with the world becomes very limited. Our culture and our lives have become very, very private. It's harder to spend time with the non-Christian world. It's harder to live among the pagans. 
So given this privatisation of life, where are the places that we intersect with the, the non-Christian, the pagan world? Where are the places we spend most amount of time with people who aren't Christian believers? Well, I think the workplace has got to become a key place. And if you're not working in a, in a pagan workplace, there are other contexts and places, but I think this is one of the, work, way the reasons I think the workplace has become a key place. It's the time where we spend most amount of time with non-believers. During the week, most full-time workers would spend more waking hours with their co-workers than they would with their family. And in this passage, Peter's encouraging the believers to live exemplary lives among the pagans. Notice he doesn't say, as you remove yourselves from the pagans, he says, among the pagans. I knew a woman once who worked for a Christian organisation, and she had previously worked at a secular company, but she left because she said she couldn't handle the culture. And her response was to retreat to a safe Christian bubble. Now, not for a second saying it's wrong to work for a Christian organisation. I work for one myself. But I think we do need to think about how to live and work among the pagans. Because retreat to cultural comfort is often too, is too often our inclination. Hence, therefore, I think we need to embrace where God's put us at work. And I think we need to be intentional in actually living among the pagans and sharing our lives with our colleagues. I can tell you my greatest regret of my time working in insurance. And no, it wasn't actually working in insurance itself. Like, I actually did enjoy my job, and I surprisingly made surprise to say I really did enjoy my job. But my greatest regret was that I never invested enough in my colleagues. I didn't take, I rarely went out to lunch with them. I didn't, uh, I didn't get to know them well enough, and unfortunately I spent far too much time with Christians. I never really spent enough time living among the pagans. Although the guy that I had the best, interesting, the guy I had the best evangelistic conversations with at work was actually the guy, and I even went along to church with him one time, but he was also the guy that I spent the most amount of time with outside of work. So the workplace, I think, is one area in real life where we can live among pagans, among unbelievers, and there are plenty of them here today in Melbourne. We don't need to go to Africa to become missionaries. We just need to go to work. So be encouraged to live among the pagans. Go to their things. If they're into an amateur dramatic society, no matter how bad, just go along. <laughs> they're reading a book. Read their book. Watch what they watch. Listen to what they listen to. Take them out for lunch. Pay for them. Spend time with them. Live among unbelievers. It's a challenge in our modern, privatised, individualistic, cloistered existence. But I think once we start rubbing shoulders more and more authentically with unbelievers, they will notice something different about us. Be prompted to ask questions. And it's also very important that we speak. I mentioned yesterday morning about speaking, uh, how do I signal that I'm a Christian in the workplace? And I think this is important that it's kind of one of the first things you need to do in a, in a non-weird kind of weird way, slightly paradoxical, we need to say, I went to church on the weekend. What did you do on the weekend? Oh, I had a great time at church with some good friends. Not weird, but you can, um, you can say something. The gospel is adorned with actions, but it's also it's missional in all ways, but it's fundamentally a preached message. The gospel requires verbal proclamation and explanation. So I think it's incomplete, ambiguous, and even unbiblical to think that actions alone will bring someone to faith. Now, this, if we go back to the verse in 1 Peter 3, if we consider that verse about the unbelieving husband coming to faith. Now, I'm pretty sure... If you read back that passage, I'm pretty sure that the unbelieving husband knew why his wife was suddenly being nice and pure and reverent. 
He was one, remember, notice he was one, the assumption is he's one to Christ and not to being moral. I'm not sure he could genuinely be one if he didn't know the reason for why his wife was suddenly becoming so pure. The Christian not, remember, the Christian gospel is not an invitation to be moral, it's an invitation to know a person who transforms us. So the wife effectively led what you could say is a, a questionable life, a life that prompted further questions. Why, why do you do that? Why are you just so annoyingly nice? Why are you different? And then just as 1 Peter 3.15, which just goes on, uh, encourages, in response to these questions, we have an opportunity to share the reason for the hope that we have, the living hope, this new hope which we were born into. We are invited to speak, proclaim, defend, share the gospel with words. That's exactly what happened with those stories with Gillian Asquith, Tracy Trinitar and John Hudson. All were intrigued by the questionable lives of the Christians they met. But all were ultimately convinced of the person of Jesus whom they met in the pages of the Bible. So to say, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, uses words, misses the fundamental point that words are necessary to communicate who Jesus is and what he's done. It's like Eddie Wu at our Life at Work conference says, it's a bit like saying, give me your phone number and if necessary, use digits. Or feed the poor and if necessary, use food. Like it's not possible to preach without words. Words are essential to Christian communication. But we do need to be wise and discerning about when and how to use them. I think we can also be wise, uh, sorry, wise and opportunistic to proactively create opportunities to share. So Colossians 4, uh, 5 to 6, which was the other passage which we had read. Colossians 4, if you want to flip that open. Colossians 4 says... Uh, 4, 5, and 6. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. See, notice he's speaking here about uh, our relationship to the world, to those who aren't believing the Christian faith. Make most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The encouragement here is to speak, to make the most of every opportunity and speak with wisdom and grace. Ask questions. Maybe we should ask questions to our colleagues. Find out what they believe. Do they have a faith? Do their parents have a faith? Why do they do what they do? What do they think about the big questions of life? Don't be afraid to raise spiritual questions or, when appropriate, mention something. Make the most of every opportunity. Uh, a great way I've seen this is through even through movies, because movies are a great way to prompt big questions. Why did the character do that way? Because you're trying to move from sort of the everyday to a sort of philosophy. Movies do that really well. As does politics, interesting. You ask people, why, why do you believe? That, what's, your, what's your vision for flourishing in our world? Because last night we saw two conflicting visions. Why not ask them what they think? Maybe even in a job interview. Now, this is a slightly radical thing, but there was a guy I met in the city recently who actually shared at his job interview, he was asked, he was invited to have a job. He was asked, uh, you know, why was he applying for this job? And he actually said in the job interview, he said, look, you know what? I'd actually like to be a pastor of a church but I can't for various reasons, so I'm applying for these. You know, I'm, this, is, this is the reason I've chosen this particular career path, and that's what I'm doing. So, what do you think? Do you think he got the job or not? Well, he got the job. In fact, he just got a, he just said, I had breakfast with him on Thursday, and he actually said he just got a pay rise because he's actually there. That, <laughs> interestingly, he has brought transformation to that team because of, partly because of his servant leadership and the different approach that he's taken. 
But he was bold. He took it most of every opportunity at the start, which is genuine in his story, to say, I uh, really want to be a pastor, but for a variety of reasons I can't. That's why I'm pursuing this career in um, economics. Make the most of every opportunity. And unsurprisingly, this guy has had a number of opportunities to share his faith with colleagues in his workplace. Now, as we share, I think it can be tempted to think, oh, maybe my, just, maybe my friend would just be better off if I don't take a risk and try. But we need to remember that the gospel really is good news. It's not just good information, not just, not just a nice message, it's good news. It really does give joy, peace, hope, comfort, assurance, forgiveness, and eternal life to everyone who believes. Romans 10 again says, How can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom, whom they have not heard? And how can they hear with someone, without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we have the opportunity to be the good news, the beautiful feet to those who we work with. What so many people are looking for, longing for, their deepest longings and desires, they will find fulfillment in Christ. And we have the, the privilege of being able to bring this good news, this be the beautiful feet to those we work with. So how then do I proclaim? Share the gospel at work? Well, I think we can communicate by both our words and our deeds. We can speak of a true God as we work with integrity and honesty. We can speak of a patient God as we patiently bear with frustrating colleagues, commitments and clients. We can speak of a forgiving God as we forgive our difficult colleagues. We can speak of an accepting God as we say sorry to our colleagues when we make a mistake. We can speak of a sovereign God who gives us peace as we remain a non-anxious presence in the workplace. We can speak of a God who is kind and compassionate as we help our colleagues with their work when they're struggling. We can spend, speak of a generous God as we pay for a round of drinks for our colleagues or take them out to lunch with us. We can speak of an eternal God who is good as we live with joy and purpose. We proclaim through our words and our actions. If we live but don't speak, it's ambiguous. If we speak but don't live, it's hypocrisy. We proclaim through our words and actions. We are uniquely placed in our workplaces to proclaim and preach the gospel at all times. Now, this does raise then a, a broader question, and I want to touch on this briefly, of the importance or the primacy of gospel proclamation. What is the place of you know, spiritual versus secular work? Is one more important than the other? And this, this is a big question. It's a very contested one in the whole faith work space. Now, I don't really have much time now to go into this in detail, but I'm going to sketch out a couple of ideas, and if you want more colour on that sketch, then you can ask some questions um, later. Now, but I, I, whenever I feel like I've actually kind of already answered this question in the fact that we are always proclaiming the gospel in some sense by our words and our actions, which flow from our identity in Christ. And in many ways, it should be evident from your lives and from your words that you belong to Team Jesus. In fact, if you've never mentioned the word Jesus, apart from, I shouldn't remember it as a swear word, but if you've never mentioned the name Jesus in the workplace at some stage, in the workplace, something, something, needs to, something, something I think is wrong. But is the purpose then of my work to have, simply to evangelise my colleagues? Well, I think the answer to this is yes, of course. We've been placed in our workplace as God's ambassadors. I actually say this is kind of uncontroversial because I argued yesterday that there are multiple purposes for our work and this is just one of them. 
with the opportunity to be the beautiful feet to those that we work with. But is this the primary or the sole reason we're to work, to evangelise my colleagues? And I know some who advocate this view, but I think this is simplistic and reductionist. And this view, again, unwittingly, as we talked yesterday, I'm, I think inadvertently and mistakenly makes work kind of instrumental and can be kind of demotivating and confusing, particularly if you work by yourself or you're amidst opposition and hostility. For example, I knew a guy who worked in a very small team, only four people, and he had opportunity or something to, to share something of the Christian faith with each of them, but none actually showed any interest and they actually began opposing the message and his, guy, his boss actually asked him to no longer share the gospel in his workplace. So what should he do? Should he leave or should he persevere? I think it's a complex question. And I think it's just too simple to say he leaving, he should leave to get because he might not easily get another job and he has other commitments and there's other purposes to his work. He has a family to feed, a mortgage to service or a rent to pay. I think it's just too simple. Um, I, think, I don't think he'd be disobedient to God by staying in his role because there he could still make the most of every opportunity, even though his opportunities are limited. He's still called to live a good life in Christ, but even though they may revile him, maybe they will see his good deeds and ultimately give glory to God. There's still a question I think emerges about the priority of gospel proclamation. And at the heart of this debate, I think it's trying to affirm what's truly important, what's primary. And sometimes the debates sort of cast around, well, what will last into eternity? And a lot of this debate, and I think it's important to just raise this, even though we probably won't have enough time to go into it in detail, uh, and the interpretation of a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a magnificent passage about the resurrection and the future. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And so we see here uh, this idea that some interpret work of the Lord here very widely to assume that everything we do in line with God's eschatological purposes. It's kind of this idea that what's going to last into eternity? Well, it's the work of the Lord, which is kind of everything you do as a Christian. Others interpret work of the Lord more narrowly to mean sort of edification and evangelism. Uh, So that's what the work of the Lord is, and that's what's going to last. But I actually think that Paul means something even more foundational and even narrower still. I think in this context, the work of the Lord is simply staying a Christian. Laboring in the Lord, I think, is just a metaphor for the Christian life. Now, you can answer some more questions about this if you like, um, particularly if this is something you've been thinking or wrestling about. But I think that the thrust of 1 Corinthians 15 is an exhortation to stand firm in the faith, and hence an encouragement that they haven't believed in vain, that their belief in Christ is not in vain. Their hard work, their perseverance is not pointless. Not specifically because the fruit of their labour lasts into eternity, or not specifically because their evangelism or whatever, it lasts into eternity, but simply because they stay believers. Just as Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 16... 13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be of courage, be strong. But to be honest, I actually do find this debate about the primacy of evangelism at work, etc., a bit frustrating. I don't really like the question, and, and, and my job is actually to encourage evangelism in the workplace. <laughs> what I think is primary is being a Christian and living for Jesus, bearing fruit in every good work. We must make the most of every opportunity, live good lives, but most fundamentally, stay Christian. Because the journey, the exertion is not in vain. Our labour in the Lord is not in vain. Billy Graham once said that I believe that the next great move of God is going to be through believers in the workplace. And the workplace is an amazing place to declare and promote Jesus. 
due to our identity-transformed lives, what we looked at yesterday, we will be different, but we also need to be bold and genuinely share the reason for the hope we have. Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, shares a beautiful illustration of this. He says, working for a company in Manhattan, this woman, a woman he shares, who he met, made a big mistake that she thought would cost her job. But her boss went to her superior and took complete responsibility. As a result of this, he lost some of his reputation and ability to maneuver within the organization. She was amazed at what he had done and went to thank him. Now, she told him that she'd seen supervisors take the credit for what she had accomplished, but she'd never seen a supervisor take the blame for something she'd done wrong. She wanted to know what made him different. He was very modest and deflected her questions, but, he was, but she was insistent. And finally, he told her, I am a Christian. And that means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. That's why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. Now, she stared at him for a long moment and asked, where do you go to church? She said, suggested she go to Redeemer, which is Tim Keller's church, and she did. So this guy lived a questionable life, didn't he? His behaviours flowed directly from his Christian conviction. He was living a life that was truly life. He was living a holy life. His actions were consistent with the message. He lived a good life among the pagans. But crucially, he also told her, he spoke the real reason for his actions. He was a Christian and his motivation stemmed from God's work on the cross. Now, I could tell you lots more stories of proclamation in the workplace, but I thought I'd actually get up someone up now who I think is a really great evangelist uh, she might not think that, but I'd like to invite her up. So, Catherine, if you can come up to share. Um, that was the kind of, that was, the, I thought Catherine was, Catherine was already in the room when, I was going to get Di to get Catherine when I said 1 Corinthians 15. That was the trigger. So, when I saw Catherine there, Di was about to get up, but I thought that's not, she'll actually get confused. She'll be running around kind of finding it's Catherine. It's enough, okay, yeah. <laughs> that's the, uh, thank you. I just wanted to explain that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what, what I, I do, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a preacher, so I, often take a long time <laughs> to explain things. So Catherine works uh, as a public servant in the city of Melbourne, has been working there for a number of years, um, but has also had many opportunities to share your faith with your colleagues. So Cameron, maybe can you tell, what do you do to spend time with your colleagues? How do you actually live among your, 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 fr- your colleagues at work? Um, what I think has worked for me is that when I've been at work, I've tried to make genuine friendships and a lot of that is being vulnerable with someone, I know, just spending time with them. And I think that eventually led to a lot of my... So what sort of ways do you spend time with your colleagues? Well, what, what has happened now is that most of my colleagues will come over nearly weekly to my house for dinner. Uh, and there's another colleague that ho- um, also hosts weekly dinners with me and some other workmates. So I kind of go over there. Um, but I guess le- getting there, it was just, I don't know just making friends with people, like genuine friendships, not just how you're going, but like, I guess, trying to do life with them a little bit. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the weekly dinners has been an important way to get to know your friends. But you also watch what they watch, listen to what they listen yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, I watch what they watch. I started watching Game of Thrones because of them, and now it's my favourite show. And <laughs> um, I don't know, doing lots of hobbies. I never thought I'd do. Like, I went to the gym with a colleague. Like, I'd never do that of yeah, my own accord ever. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. That's what was driving you through this? Uh, I just wanted to share my faith with them and I thought, I don't know. I think if you if you love other people, you want to share your faith with them and I love them, so part of loving them is getting to know them. And, 
And so what's yeah. happened? You've got to know them. You had these weekly dinners, etc. What's been the fruit of that? Oh, there's been lots of fruit in lots of different ways. Um, some of them I've got to know quite well. And one of the things I've found helpful in my evangelism is just asking someone if they want to read the Bible. And I, before I'd started working, I would have thought that was like a weird thing to do, just asking someone to read the Bible. But everyone I've asked has said yes, and there's been quite a few people. So I don't know. You could try doing that. Um, yeah. So, what, oh, just other ways that you've shared with your colleagues. Other ways, yeah. I don't know. In, inviting them to things. Um, there's lots of city Bible forum things that people can get invited to. Or right. there's one coming um, up actually in two weeks. That's mm-hmm. right. <laughs> yeah. It's a great event on space. It's and a, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be. But it's really good. Yeah. Oh, you can also, there's church events as well, isn't there? You've yeah. invited people to church. Yeah, I've invited some people to church. Yeah, yeah. Um, one how's, of the things... that, how's that gone down? Like, how's that gone down when people, you know, like to read, you know, you've got this colleague, this friend, like, yeah. how's it gone down when you actually say, would you like to read the Bible? Um, everyone has said yes when I've asked them. Mm. So I've had seven people say yes. Um, usually when it goes down, I'm just really nervous and I'm just like, Girl pair. Um, <laughs> so I'm kind of preaching to myself as I do it. So it's always quite nervous. And every time we do it, um, it always goes unexpectedly. Like the first time I did it, it was with someone that said they'd been a Christian for a very, very long time, but stopped going to church um, because they'd been dating a non-Christian and all that. And she was raised in a church. I thought she'd know about the Bibles. And I said, hey, do you want to read the Bible? And we go to read the Bible, I'm like, okay, let's read Matthew. She couldn't find Matthew in the Bible. So things like that, it just kind of caught me off guard. And then with everyone else, I've gone in thinking, let's read this. And they've they've all started saying, no, no, how about we read, I want to hear a story that says this, or mm. I heard this happen in the Bible. Can you explain that? I'm like, okay, well, we'll read that. So mm. it's kind of, it's it's, yeah. It's kind of gone weird, but it's gone well. And, you know, I'm not very good at reading the Bible with a non-Christian, but you just kind of stumble across it. And yeah. people have come to church afterwards. And people, beca- yeah, I had a friend become a Christian after I'd read the Bible with them after a while. So, yeah. So do you consider yourself a great evangelist, though? I consider myself a poor evangelist, but I still do it. And God loves using people that muck it up. So lots of times I've said crummy things, but that's, God's got it sorted, he works in hearts, doesn't, yeah, just, I'll give it a go, I guess, better than doing nothing. (laughs) Drew, thank you so much for sharing, Catherine, it's wonderful. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us a gospel of good news, Uh, that's great news that uh, transforms who we are, how we live and how we speak. We give you thanks for Catherine and the great opportunity she's had in her workplace of spending time among her colleagues, getting to know them and being bold to take every, most, make the most of every opportunity. We pray in our work contexts, in our lives and our lips may speak of something of the truth and the beauty and the goodness of Jesus and the hope that he brings. And may we be able to engage our colleagues and may introduce them to Jesus and may some of them find true life in him. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. <laughs>